It's great to be with you all for worship. If you're visiting, I see some visitors. Uh, welcome again. Uh, my name is Joshua, and I'll be bringing you the word today. Uh, we're continuing our series in 1 Timothy, getting into chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. So let's look at that together. Uh, hear the word of God. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead, even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur a condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Uh, dear God, you are full of compassion. Teach us how to be like you to ourselves and to those in need. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, the diaconate here at our church has read a book called When Helping Hurts by Steve Corbett and Brian Fickert. And the book opens with a story of a Presbyterian missionary uh, coming from a very similar theological background as ours at this church, doing quote-unquote biblical small business training in the ghettos of Kampala, uh, the capital of Uganda. Well, he and his wife were working with a Christian leader there to help the community. And one day, this leader asked the people, how has God worked in your life as a result of this training? Uh, and a rugged-looking lady raised her hand and said, I'm a witch doctor. And after hearing the lessons, I went back to church. So what do I do now? Uh, the leader told her to bring all her herbs and medicines, which were her source of income, to the church so they could burn it all up and she could confess her sins. 
Uh, and of course, the missionaries watched all this happen. Uh, well, not too long after this incident, they saw that this woman was absent from class one week. And when they went to check on her, they discovered her writhing in pain, in extreme sickness in her home. She had developed tonsillitis. Uh, but because she was now poorer than before and already had HIV, she had no more resources for medicine and the hospital didn't take her. And the missionary, desperate to help out somehow, gave up some money for penicillin and the woman was able to recover sometime later. And on the way back to the U.S., this missionary and his family celebrated because they believed they did good work, bringing a witch doctor to Christ and getting a chance to save her life. What's wrong with this story? Well, what's wrong with this story is that this missionary was being straight up ignorant. God have mercy. Um, he didn't fully understand the economic dimensions of this woman's lifestyle, the cultural complexities of Kampala, or the everyday realities of poverty in the ghetto. He said, we brought somebody to Christ. And maybe that's true, but he wasn't fully loving somebody like Christ. And he admits that. That's what the book is about, when helping hurts. Today's passage deals with the church caring for those in need, particularly widows. One of the callings of a Christian was to look after the least of these, as Jesus always did. But something I hope we can see is that Paul had a holistic picture of this calling, uh, See, when he was instructing Timothy, he was culturally, economically, and spiritually attentive to the whole situation in Ephesus. And we should look into what that means. Now, I have to mention that this passage deals with women in the Ephesian community. And on the surface, the Bible doesn't always look like it's being fair to the experience of women, especially those not in traditional roles. Um, but as we've seen, uh, what we've been doing in this series, it's important to look at the historical context of these verses to understand them correctly. So we'll try to get into a, a bit of that today. Here's the main idea for the sermon. God calls the church to be wisely informed of our community when caring for each other in need. Um, God calls the church to be wisely informed of our community when caring for each other in need. Three points. Uh, the care of the family. Number two, the care of those in need. And number three, the care of the soul. First, the care of the family. So the concept of family uh, is extremely important in Paul's letters, right? He uses a lot of family metaphors. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we saw him refer to church as the household of God. Um, now, there are two levels to family in Paul. First, there are actual blood relationships, uh, your parents, relatives, siblings. And then more broadly, there's spiritual family. In verses 1 to 2, he says, treat older men as fathers, younger men as brothers, women as mothers and sisters. But the reason this family language was so important in Paul, in this case, was partly logistical. Um, in that time, as we've been saying, there was a lot of opposition coming into the church, new philosophies and heresies that were pulling people away from Jesus. And one of the influences of this opposition was that people were living a radically independent lifestyle, uh, glorifying freedom and forsaking family responsibilities. Um, now, of course, this is not saying that being single was bad. Paul and Timothy were both single. 
It's just that, especially in that time, Christian family members, married or not, cared for each other as a way of economic stability and also honoring that support structure that God put in place for them. Um, And the logistical part was that there were a lot of poor widows in Ephesus at that time who lost that support um, because of the trend of forsaking family responsibility. Uh, See, being a widow was a severely disadvantaged position because usually the husband would be the breadwinner. And ideally, if she had children or grandchildren, they would take care of her after the father's passing. If she didn't have children, relatives would help out, but none of these things were happening for a lot of women. And Paul calls on the people not only to take care of immediate family, verse 8, but also to take care of the spiritual family, being attentive to those who are alone and in desperate circumstances. Uh, Let me pause here. This idea of radical individualism was not unique in Ephesus, obviously. Uh, Andrew Carnegie, one of the richest Americans in the 19th century, was, of course, known for his philanthropy, but he was also an empire builder. And this is what he said in 1907. While the law of competition may sometimes be hard for people, it's best for the human race because it ensures the survival of the fittest in every department. We accept and welcome, therefore, great inequality, the concentration of business, industrial and commercial, in the hands of the few, and the law of competition between these as as being not only beneficial, but essential for the future progress of the human race. Um, This kind of survival of the fittest view of progress in America has a long history. We can talk about that. But what's most interesting to me is that it's also tied to a disconnect from God, secularization. Um, Sociologists say that as a society gets more technologically advanced, affluent, and competitive, it also becomes more individualistic and secular. And that makes a lot of sense because if you're not convinced of anything beyond this life and the spiritual stuff is a little too unrealistic for you, then of course all you have uh, is to try to be the fittest and most comfortable you can be while you're on earth. Why should anybody fault you for doing you? But what I want to suggest is that if what Paul is talking about here is true at all, um, would we consider another way to look at life? Um, The language we used at youth group last Friday was, would we try on the gospel just to see how it fits, Uh, maybe for the first time or as a reminder. Um, If you're not convinced of the gospel ethic at this point in your life or career, that's all right, but would you try it on today? The gospel says God's dream for his people is for them to be in a community, not as isolated individuals, but a community that's so connected to each other that we start using the language of family, um, not in a cultish way, but but in a way that says your pain is my pain, Uh, your hope is my hope, and your flourishing is my flourishing. We become a genuine part of each other's lives. Uh, See, Jesus, before he went to the cross, he prayed to his Father. And he said, Father, that they may be one, that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. He gave himself so that the kind of family love he received from his father, we would have with him 
and with each other, experiencing that gift of connection. That's God's dream for his people. My uh, professor likes to tell the story of John Coltrane, the jazz artist. One time Coltrane was on stage and he was playing so intensely, just veins popping out of his neck, blowing his saxophone to the absolute limit. And in the middle of his performance, he just threw down his instrument and started beating his chest, yelling. And his bandmate said, uh, what are you doing? And he said, it's for the people. I want to give it all to the people and the saxophones getting in the way. Uh, he, he, he was saying the audience gave themselves to him and he gives himself to them in that moment. See, that's not a celebrity performance. Uh, it's a way he decided to love. The gospel says that giving to those in need, which we're about to get into, is not just charity. It's an invitation from Jesus. Uh, to feel burdened toward the mothers, fathers, sisters, and brothers in our community because the people around us are precious to him just as each of us is precious to him in eternity. And we don't have to cling so hard to survival of the fittest if we know that. It gives us the bandwidth to spend our energy on somebody else's growth. Of course, there are times when we have to think about boundaries and rest for ourselves, and we can talk about that. But the point is, what does outward living according to Jesus' ethic, look like for you. Some of us are Christians in here, but functionally live like atheists sometimes, me included. And Paul's concerned about that. He calls it worse than being an unbeliever because that's dishonest. I'm just asking us, would we try on the gospel ethic again? See what Jesus' invitation to family renewal is all about. That's care for the family. Second, care for those in need. So there are all these uh, widows in Ephesus, widows in need. And what Paul does is he takes the need seriously, which means a few things. First, he recognizes that there is a need and that the church should not stand idly by. Uh, one mistake that a lot of churches make, particularly people like us, uh, relatively middle-class reformed churches is that we start with a general principle of good works and we make the application optional. Uh, oh, we should practice generosity. Uh, we should love our neighbor. Uh, we should follow Jesus in renewing our neighborhood. We, we say these things and make them part of our Christian vocab, but in practice, we pick and choose how to apply them. Uh, Generosity, oh yeah, I donate here and there. Uh, uh, love your neighbor. Oh, I said hi to somebody on, on my street the other day. Uh, renew our neighborhood, oh, I promote cleanliness. Uh, it's our choice on how deep or specific we want to be in the application. So as long as we have the right theology, we can adjust our lives to it how we want to. Uh, how we want to. But that's not what God's heart reveals in scripture, and maybe that's why it surprises us sometimes. We have this instinct to justify. James 1.27, religion that's pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. It's specific. See, Jesus didn't say, I am the bread of life, just out of the blue as an as a abstract teaching. No, he fed the physical stomachs of the people in the crowd, and then he said, I am the bread of life. Actually recognizing and serving the needy, the oppressed, those on the margins, those in a difficult predicament, widows and orphans in a tangible way is equally as important to Jesus' mission as forgiveness of sins and individual salvation. Um, 
to be involved in the lives of suffering uh, in our midst, in other words, is an optional. It's part of gospel life. So that's the first way in which Paul takes the need seriously. The second way he takes the need seriously is he doesn't throw money at the problem. Uh, Now, he uses the phrase truly widows um, to describe those the church should be helping out. Uh, There's a spiritual element to that word truly, which we'll get into in the last point. But when Paul says care for those who are truly widows, he's not trying to suss out who's actually in need. No, at the time, there were some women who really had nobody, uh, no children or family, and whose dowry, their savings from when they got married, was very little. They were the poorest of the poor and alone. And, and these people needed immediate relief, emergency situations, and the deacons and others could use church funds to support them. Um, So these, in a sense, were quote-unquote truly widows economically. But with other cases, again, Paul didn't solve things just by giving money. Um, Partly because church resources were limited, but also because he knew that for many women, there was a possibility for more sustainable support structures. Um, He could call on family members, uh, church members who were close to a widow, friends, children, and grandchildren. Uh, These could create an emotional and financial support system that would be a lot more reliable and longer term than a one-time gift from the church. Um, So in other words, Paul, Paul cared enough and was serious enough to understand that needs are not solved by a savior mentality pat on the back. Uh, but instead, wherever possible, by inviting the community to create an environment of care around the needy for longer-term help. And the third way Paul took the need seriously was, of course, to not patronize the needy. Uh, What does it say in verse 3? Honor widows. And he says that many of these widows were upstanding members in the church community, love their husbands, a reputation for good works, caring for children, hospitality. And so they had equal dignity, worth, and agency to any other sister or brother among them. One time I was on a subway and I saw a man who was clearly not in the best financial situation. He wasn't well off. And he had prepared some foodstuffs to sell for a dollar or two each to make some kind of living for the day. And I saw a high school student fooling around with his friends. And when he saw the man, he gave him a dollar. But then he said to him, I don't need the food, man. Keep the dollar. And the man was clearly upset. And at the next stop, he stormed off the train. Uh, If that student was in our youth group, we would celebrate his heart, but also have a talk with him. Uh, See, it's one thing to give charity to a person in need but it's another thing to recognize that person's full dignity as a human being. The guy on the train was being productive and providing goods for people in exchange for money in his own way, but the student saw him as a mere object of pity. There's this weird capitalistic mindset that poor means less valuable or less intelligent or less competent or making less wise choices in life and therefore deserving of pity or criticism, not honor. Paul says, honor the widows. To be in need doesn't mean to be not able to find solutions or agency. It just means to be in need in a season of life. 
So you can see the various ways in which Paul was thinking and acting intentionally when it came to loving people. Family of God, we live in a culture where it's easy to have efficient solutions for problems, especially when it comes to money. Well, what would it look like for us as we look around King's Cross uh, or Flushing or wherever you find yourself, to the best of our ability, channel our hearts to all the dimensions of need? Who needs immediate relief? Um, who has the capacity for support structures? Who can be empowered to lead others? What kind of care would address the mental and emotional as well as the physical needs? That's the level of detail at which Christ considered his people when he was on earth. What would it look like to love like that for us? Which brings me to the last point. Care for the soul. So the most difficult part of our text is when Paul says in verse 9, enroll, which means take in as members and provide support for, widows who are not less than 60 and have a good track record for being a moral person. Um, and then he says to refuse younger widows who have gone away from the faith, who follow their passions, get involved in marriages that are self-indulgent and gossip about foolish things. Now, on the surface, it sounds like Paul's discriminating between good widows and bad widows, even though all these women were in need of help. And it gets even more difficult when his recommendation to these younger widows is to go get married and have children. To many women today who can't or may not want to get married or have children, that sounds oppressive. So what exactly is Paul doing here? And again, we have to look at the context. Uh, in verse 10, it seems like Paul's giving a checklist for what makes a good widow. Uh, but just like what we saw in the qualifications for elders and deacons, this is not meant to be an official exam for neediness uh, or, or, or upstanding uh, character. See, at, at, at the time in Rome, there was the emergence of a new kind of woman, uh, more active in public life, sexually liberated, and vocal. And younger women in Ephesus were being influenced by this trend. Um, but not only that, they were also believing in the heresies coming into the church, so they became increasingly opposed to Christ for living for selfish gain. And, and Paul was saying, yes, the church should care for all widows. He never refused financial care for anyone. But he was also saying care could look different depending on who it is. Um, if this was a mature person following Christ and pursuing godliness, unlike the opponents, the church could afford to enter into a long-term relationship of care for her, enrolling her and trusting that she could steward that money well. Uh, this was the spiritual aspect of what he meant by truly a widow. But, but if this was an immature person, utterly rebellious toward Christ, uh, you might try to help her out somehow financially, but there's also the spiritual issue of her possibly using up the money in unwise ways or ways destructive to the community. Uh, and worst of all, experiencing spiritual emptiness, as it says in verse 6. And so as a word of wisdom, Paul hoped these younger women would consider what it could mean for them to submit to community and responsibility again, if possible through marriage and raising children, not forsaking family altogether. Um, so, so this was about discernment, not only based on financial situation, but also spiritual situation, because care for some young women might have looked like pointing them back to godliness again um, in their hearts. Church, um, in order for us to be wise agents of care in our community, we not only act as a family 
and, cons uh, and not only consider all the dimensions of need, we also are aware of the spiritual cries among us and out there. Somebody said to me, yeah, Josh, uh, there's a woman near my building who uh, panhandles. Uh, and I'm hesitant about giving because she might use it for drugs and alcohol or something. Um, and that might be fair. I understand that's happened. Uh, but the point is, why is she there? Uh, what's her story? Uh, what are her scars? And what evil systems, political and infrastructural, might have forced her to be in that place? And if she is involved with substances, what led her to that addiction? What is she crying out for? Paul is pushing people to be attuned to the systems of evil and patterns of evil leading people to destruction um, in his environment. These are the spiritual cries of people. Theologian Gustavo Gutierrez wrote, so you say you care about the poor, then tell me, what are their names? Every person made in the image of God is a sinner and a sufferer with a story, and the gospel offers the love of God to each person. What would it mean for us to offer that to somebody who has spiritual cries just like anybody else, whether it's through time spent with them, learning their name, prayer, or even the word in addition to financial needs that they might carry. That's holistic gospel friendship, loving somebody as ourselves. Yesterday I spent some time with our precious diaconate who's been doing such amazing work applying this passage for so many years. See, there are people who are leading in mercy ministry here at King's Cross, but they shouldn't be alone in that. How might we all join them in their work, pray for them, learn from them, love them, and walk with them as well, obeying the call together, being a family of support. Family of God, Jesus says to each of you, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? When he was on this earth, Jesus spent a lot of time with women and men who were suffering. And when he went to the cross, it was his promise that he would continue to care for his people until he came back. And that's exactly what he does, one day at a time, providing for us in his wisdom and feeling with us when we're struggling. So when he calls us to look after those in need around us, he's not asking us to do what he doesn't do for us. He gave his body so that we could know he's with us one day at a time, one moment at a time. 